one guy, one gal, one actor, and one year. Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the Kevin, Kevin Costner Project. Well, hello, Greg. Hello, Kate. Welcome back for another episode of the Kevin Costner Project. I think this is going to be a very special episode. Do you remember back in the 80s when sitcoms would tackle a tough subject, they would call it a very special episode? Yeah, I, I do. So you're considering this that type of thing, huh? I think so. We're going to delve into some deep topics this evening and... These movies didn't pull any punches. Fair point, fair point. So, what else going on? Before we get into it, I, I think we should maybe talk about the cat. Yep, and we have an exchange student coming. Yeah, so by the time everybody hears this, we will be hosting Jana from Germany. And uh, we were not planning to host an exchange student this year. We have done it... Yana is our 10th student, and... Well, at least Kate's 10th. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Your 4th or 5th? 4th, I think. 4th, yeah. And we were not planning to do it this year, but there are still kids, believe it or not, who want to come to the United States this fall, and they are waiting for host families, so... We're not being paid to promote this, but if you have room in your home and in your heart, you can go to afsusa.org, and you too can become a host family. So Yana will be with us until December and we asked her her thoughts on Kevin Costner. We did a Skype with her parents and her the other night and she has no idea who Kevin Costner is. We have to educate her. <laughs> She's about to find out big time I think. Yes. The cat. Oh boy yes. Dodo of course one of our cats. We've mentioned her before. Well, she's gotten into wanting to watch YouTube for cats. So if you don't know about this, YouTube has a number of creators who create content just for cats. And we can put it on, and it makes a little chirp, and she knows that is the signal to go to the TV and watch up to eight hours of birds and rabbits and squirrels and chipmunks. chipmunks and you name it. <laughs> And she absolutely loves it. So, this week we sat down to watch our first Kevin Costner movie of the week. And, like, when it started, there was, like, a little, not the same chirp, but there was kind of, like, a chirping sound to yeah. start it. And she just perked right up. And then the movie came on, and she was not happy. But she sat there staring. That's true. She did watch about half the movie anyway. Yes. <laughs> so we think we have a feline TV addict. Maybe we'll post some video of her on our TikTok. We can try that. We've been looking for some TikTok content. Yeah. So if you want to see Dodo watching the birdies, uh, check that out a little bit later in the week. So this week we watched two movies. Yes. The first one was Table for Five. The second one was Testament. Correct. You may have noticed this week that our intro has changed. And Greg, why did we put the sounds of the ocean? Well, we put it because both of these movies caused tears 
for both of us. These were absolute tearjerkers of movies. Yeah, so, yeah. We, we have to admit it to ourselves. We cried in both. I don't like crying, and I don't like crying in front of people. I, I know, I know. And I think it's entirely possible I'm even going to cry recording. We're going to see. But I was, like, driving home from work today thinking about recording the podcast and thinking about the movies, and I got a little weepy. Oh. Yeah. So, so get your hankies ready if you watch these. I think it's actually kind of exciting because these were the first movies we've watched as part of this that I actually really enjoyed. The first four movie watch? Well, no, we've watched five so far. And there were a couple that were pretty good, but for the most part... I haven't enjoyed myself all that much watching these films, but these two, they were darn good. Okay, so Greg, movie number one, Table for Five. We are still in 1983. Correct. Both of these are from 1983, yeah. What are some of the details? What was the rating of Table for Five? Well, it was a PG, and it is a drama slash indie film. And the runtime was two hours and two minutes. The co-stars of the movie were... Well, these were the big stars. Okay. Kevin is back to a basically nothing role in this movie. We see him, and I think he may have one line in the whole movie. Which I think was, I'll be right back. Yeah. But we couldn't even get audio for this week again. Right. But... The stars of the movie more were John Voight and Richard Brenner. Yep. John Voight is famous for being Angelina Jolie's father. I mean, he is an actor in his own right, but let's face it. At this point, everybody knows who she is. and Very few people probably remember him all that much. I don't think he's done much acting lately. I don't know. You even had to tell me who he was. I didn't know <laughs> yeah. when we were watching the movie. And I don't know if I've ever seen any of his other movies. I didn't even bother to look him up, truth be told. So, And Richard Crenna, I think he was probably bigger in the 70s. I don't know. I don't know much about him. But I'm feeling like he was a 70s kind of guy. Although he looked fairly young in this. So who knows? Maybe he was a 70s, 80s kind of guy. Got it. What did the critics have to say, Greg? Rotten Tomatoes gave it a 67, so that's a lot better than some of the movies we've watched. The last one, Stacy's Nights, got a 21, if I recall correctly. It was pretty bad. IMDb gave it a 6.1 out of 10. So pretty good marks, really. Yeah. Not the best we've seen, but... Pretty up there compared to some of the other stuff we've watched. Let's get into the movie. Of course, there's spoiler alerts. If you have waited 40 years to see this, you may want to fast forward to the end when we give our ratings. What is Table for Five about? Well, it mostly involves being on a cruise ship. Yes. So John Voigt is a guy who is basically estranged from his three children. Correct. And I guess it's summer vacation or something like that. And he's still somewhat in touch with their mother who has remarried a lawyer. I think they live... I'm not even sure if they are officially married. I think they are, but I I don't know. Yeah, it wasn't clear. She and John Voight are divorced. I think John Mm -hmm. Voight's character's name is Jim. 
Anyway, Jim calls his ex-wife and wants to take the kids on a cruise to Egypt. No. Strike that. They meet in the airport. Correct. And he hasn't even told his wife. But where, where the uh, where taking he's taking their children right for vacation, and as a parent myself now, there is no way in hell I would be letting this happen. But they show up at the airport. The kids are packed, and he's like, "Guess what? We're going on a cruise to Egypt." No, mm, no, d- d- bad idea. Don't do that. So she's married to Richard Crenna's character, whose name is Mitchell. They have a dog, Mitchell, mom, and the dog go away and Jim and the three kids he has an adopted first son who is 14 I think and then a daughter who's maybe 10 or 12 and then a little boy Truman Paul and he's like eight maybe nine years old and he has a disability he's having trouble learning to read which I can relate to myself because I I really didn't read very good until fifth grade myself yeah so i think that part really hit you hard yeah yeah that that was actually one of the times that i think a a tear or two came to my eyes because i was remembering back to my childhood yep so they they get on board the vista fjord and they head to the mediterranean there they meet Kevin Costner. Well, actually, they don't really meet him. It just seems to be in this thing that every time the camera pans past him, he grabs a mystery woman and kisses her. His official character is newlywed husband. He shows up several times basically kissing his new wife. Anyway, the kids are excited to be with their dad. This dude has been living on the opposite coast. Mom's in New York. I think he's in California somewhere. It almost looked like the Sizzle Beach house a little bit. He's got a lot of schemes. He used to be a professional golfer, but he's kind of down on his luck. He has a lot of schemes for building like a resort community. Right, yeah. He's got this dream of building this community that's around the golf course. And, of course, he hasn't thought it very thoroughly through when few people bring up like what about the golf balls going through the windows and stuff and he hasn't doesn't have a very good answer for it yet and i think it's his daughter that's really grilling him. yeah i think that's right she's quite bright she knows what's what and he's clearly not entirely on board for parenting so you know he's looking at all the hot chicks on the ship while he's supposed to be spending time with his three children Hint, that's part of the reason he wanted to have a a fifth seat at the table. (laughs) Yes. Even though it's him and his three children, they have an empty seat placed at their table because he thinks he's going to get a girlfriend. Right. And when his daughter suggests uh, having this older dude that's been sitting by himself come over, he rejects it, I believe, mostly because he's still thinking about having a young lady join them. Yeah, so there's this nice little old man that is sitting by himself every meal nearby and turns out his wife has died and he didn't want to lose out on his cruise money, so he's gone by himself. And the kids are real hot on inviting him to dinner and Dad's like, no, we might need it for this hot blonde I'm looking at or whatever. Right, right. Anyways, fast forward. 
they're aware dad isn't in, in super into this and they're kind of getting into some trouble. The older kid is trying to go drinking. He, he has a fake ID uh, trying to get drinks. Dad's losing his ever-loving mind. He doesn't know really who these kids are. And then one night he gets a call from the captain to go up to the communications room where he gets a call from Mitchell that, unfortunately, his ex-wife has died tragically in a car accident, and Mitchell is coming to retrieve the children. Right, and of course there was a cut scene in there where we see the accident that happened where she died, and it seemed as though maybe the dog also didn't make it. We see the dog laying on the ground as well, quite injured. He gets that call and, oof. So then it becomes like... He doesn't know if he should tell them that their mother has died. Mitchell is coming. Clearly, they're going to know something is wrong. But he's also met this hot French chick that he's spending a lot of time with. And he's also randomly sending the children out with her to, like, ride camels and stuff. So he knows that the children are going to be devastated. But he doesn't really know how to tell them. He doesn't know what he's going to do about being a dad. He has no experience, and he's not especially good at it. Yeah. And that's kind of how the movie goes. Eventually, Mitchell shows up, and they are forced to tell the children, which is when I lost it. John Voight's character eventually tells the kids. Mitchell doesn't come meet the kids again until right at the end there. So he has to tell them. (laughs) But... Before that, he had gotten really silent. He didn't know how to say anything to them. And so it was very hard for him. You can just see the devastation out of the the children after he tells them. Especially the little guy, little Truman Paul, his name is. And he is so... Both of these movies have got the cutest darn little boys in them. And they have very expressive faces. Yeah, yeah, I would say so. And when he learns that his mother has died and the little tears spring to his eyes, it just ripped my heart out. Plain and simple, anyone who does not know me would not know, but I lost my mom this year after a very lengthy illness, having to make some of those calls and say that she was gone and I I was lucky enough to be with her when she passed, but, you know, to tell my daughter and to see my sister tell her children and, um, you know, for all of us to go through that, it, it was very difficult to watch here, I have to say. And it's only been, my mom died about five months ago, so it hasn't really been that long. And, uh, I was just thinking before we watched this movie that her birthday I think the podcast will come out on her birthday this week, um, October 24th. And so just lots of thoughts and feelings about losing my mom as I watched these little guys ostensibly lose their mom. And it was a hard watch. Yeah. And I guess part of it is for these kids, they don't, I mean, they don't know how to really connect with their dad because he's been away for four years i think it was that it's sort of not yeah not really in the picture for four years mitchell points out he calls on their birthdays right exactly that's it so really truman paul ends up crying on his sister's shoulder not the dad when that happens and so 
it's quite emotional and sort of a tug of war of emotions and everything. Oh, Kate's uh, tearing up a little bit here, folks. Bear with us. Okay, sorry. Anyway, it's hard enough losing your mom in your 40s, much less when you're, right. you know, when you're eight or nine years old and you're struggling so hard with everything else. Um, yeah, I can't imagine it. So the rest of the movie is really about this guy struggling with what he's going to do and then he and Mitchell kind of figuring out what they're going to do and then the ending is such that uh, Jim's let Mitchell know that he's going to keep his children and whatever it takes, he's going to be a dad. Truman Paul has kind of won his heart over by basically all but killing himself to be able to spell the word policeman. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and it's touched his heart. It, it was heart-wrenching in the extreme. I can't even talk about it anymore. There's no good ending here because we don't actually know what happens. Right. I mean, at least he's actually learned some stuff about the kids. The fact that he knows about Drew and Paul's disability. He knows their teacher's names. Knows their friends. And he, so we see that he's made that effort. I mean, he admits that he learned it just that morning, but at least he has now made that effort and he he truly seems like he's flipped that switch or wants to change but of course then you have Mitchell who has a steady job he's in their house that they've been living in he's saved up money for the kids for the future to go to college oh. he's already consulted with counselors so he's also doing all the right things and the impression I was sort of left with was that for one of them, it was going to be like a zero-sum game. One of them was going to take these kids. And... Right. But then at the end, both of the men walk towards where the kids are playing. Right. And that's it. There's no answer. Right. It seems as though Mitch does sort of give in, but we don't really know what exactly happened. Yeah, exactly. So, I don't know. Was this a thing of the 80s? Because this is like several of these movies have ended extremely unsatisfyingly. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I wonder that too. So, that's what we can tell you about this movie. Well, we do have one other... We have some interesting back information, Greg. Do you want to talk about the ship itself that was in the movie? The Vista Fjord. This cruise ship that they're on for the movie actually was doing a cruise in the Mediterranean. It became part of the movie. A little background on the ship. The ship was actually built in 1973. It was the most luxurious ship of its time when it was owned by Norwegian American. In 1983, the year that 
This movie came out. It was actually sold to Cunard Line. And I think they're a very famous cruise line also. Though I haven't, I personally Cunard. haven't heard of them. I feel like Titanic famous or something. I'm going to look it up. You keep talking. Okay. And after that, it was sold in 2004 to Saga. And they changed the name of it to the Saga Ruby. And again in 2014, it was sold again to be made into a floating hotel. But that fell flat. And after the new owners went bankrupt in April of 2017, it was sold for scrap. Although, since it was being made into a floating hotel, there had been about $20 million invested into the ship. Like, how rich do you have to be to scrap something that you put $20 million into? I don't know. That's what I want to know. Oof. Anyway, yes, Cunard used to be partnered with the White Star Line. It was the Cunard Steamship Company. I don't know if we're the only people in the world who find this interesting, but they built the Queen Mary. That explains it. Queen Mary is... Uh... Famous. And then they also built the QE2. So we just thought that was interesting that there was an actual cruise going on while they filmed this movie. Anyway, Kevin was in there for about uh, two minutes, maybe. He was in maybe four or five times. Yeah. It was kind of fun playing spot Kevin Costner. It was like, where's Waldo a little bit? Yeah. So overall, Greg, what would you rate this movie? It was a good movie. And I think any movie that can bring some emotions to me um, goes up a notch a little bit because I think that it really hits a chord. And I, I have to imagine that this movie must hit a chord with a lot of people. But I think for me, the thing that really hit me emotionally, and I mentioned it before, was about... Truman Paul having that disability and just remembering how much it was a struggle for me to spell and to read. I mean, you you don't get a lot of the whole picture of his disability, but it was enough to like trigger a lot of memories for me Mm -hmm. that involved it. Overall, this movie with the emotional stuff and everything, I have to count in the fact that that ending left me really wondering what happened i can't give it a really high rating i have to go mid-range then it's uh, three three yeah so i'm gonna go with you on three we actually agree on this one i enjoyed it although i feel like we've sort of seen this story before we've i don't know it just touched my heartstrings i don't know if it's because of my current emotional state I don't know what it is. I thought the kids were great. I think it was Robin Williams famously said, your career's over when you're acting with children or animals. But these kids were great. Yeah, I'm going to give it a three, mainly because I didn't like the ending. I mean, to be fair, it was already two hours long. So how much longer could you expect people to sit through it? Most of these movies from the 80s are an hour and a half. Some of these movies that like get stretched out really long, for me can get a little boring after a while. You got to really have a good storyline that hold people for that long a period of time. 
like I said, it didn't have to be a zero-sum game. It didn't all have to be Mitchell or it didn't all have to be Jim. They could have shook hands and <laughs> agreed that they were going to do what was best for these children. And the fact is, I think their egos and they're fighting over whatever her name was, her love. I think there was, well, there were some feelings still there that yeah. Jim had. And overall, very good movie. One of the best ones we've seen so far. But Agreed. not the best movie I've ever seen either. Absolutely. All right. Let's move on to Testament. That's our second movie this week. Yep. And this one I have even stronger feelings about. All right. Well, the rating for this is PG. I believe that's the same as the other one. But this is a drama slash sci-fi movie. The runtime is an hour and 30 minutes. Kevin stars as Phil, who is a, a young guy that lives in the neighborhood as the main family. Correct. And he has a wife and little baby in this. So the other stars... William Devane, Lucas Haas, and Rebecca De Mornay? Yes, Rebecca De Mornay. So she was also getting her start at this time. And if you were on our Facebook or Instagram, we were having a little contest to see if you could figure out who was the actress in the picture with Kevin on our Instagram page. And it is Rebecca De Mornay. This is, I think, her second or third movie. And she plays Kevin's wife, and I have no idea what her... We got into it. It's about a family living in the suburbs of San Francisco. And uh, the dad is played by William Devane, which I think is interesting because I don't really picture him that way. I don't know what kind of roles he was known for, but I don't picture him as the family man kind. He didn't really seem that good at it me he was like one of those real hyper dads he's in this first scene where he's yelling at his son to get out of bed and get on his bike and like let's go and they're whatever and then he he goes off to work and he is like we say married with three children and as we were watching we noticed a familiar face and that was the daughter so he has a son an older son and then a middle daughter and then a younger son much like in Table for five. The daughter was played by Roxanne Zal, Z-A-L, I hope I said that correctly, who also played John Voight's daughter in Table for Five. So she was having a banner year. Yes. Because I was like, Greg, that's the kid from the other movie. And so I looked her up just for kicks, and it turns out that she is the youngest primetime Emmy winner in history. She won primetime emmy she was in uh, some movie on tv called something about amelia that she won best supporting actress she acted into the early 2000s and then she became a fashion designer and as far as i know she's still out there very interesting very interesting yeah so it was fun to see her act again she was very good in both movies i would say and testament got a better rod tomatoes rating the table for five and a better IMDb rating. So the Rotten Tomatoes rating was 89%. And IMDb, 6.9. The plot of Testament is that one fine sunny California day. Everybody's going about their business. All of a sudden there's a giant flare comes through the window. And it turns out that probably San Francisco has been nuked off the map along with most of the East Coast. Correct. And probably 
most major American cities. And it seems like most the world. What I think was pretty faithful to this scenario is that everything goes off. Like there's no TV. You can't find anything out about anybody because nuclear war has happened and basically the entire infrastructure of the country is no more. This centers on the town of Hamlin, California, and the lives of the people who were there in this little neighborhood. It seems like a kind of idyllic small town, like all cute little neighborhoods and all the neighbors know each other and whatnot. And as time goes by and they realize like their loved ones are not returning from San Francisco and there has been this nuclear war and we have to figure out what are we going to do now to survive this thing. That is what Testament is about. Correct. And of course you probably pick up that William Devane's character doesn't make it home. He dies supposedly in, I guess, San Francisco. Yeah. Or wherever he doesn't and he can't just get back. We don't, we don't know, but we don't know what happened. It seems like he's probably dead. This movie kind of covers several months after the incident, I think. Correct. Yes. So it is based on a three-page story entitled The Last Testament by Carol A. Men. I don't want to get too deeply into it. Basically, as time goes by, so at first they're they're kind of thinking about the things that all of us would be thinking about if there was a nuclear holocaust like what am i going to eat i need gas for my car how am i going to contact my loved ones and being the 80s it's not like you could pick up a cell phone right and probably if this sort of thing happened even today um we saw in 911 like cell towers were jammed right right exactly um one of the neighbors is an older gentleman And he, fortunately, is well-prepared. He fought in World War II or something. He has a German wife. So I got the impression he was kind of a radio guy. And he has a whole entire ham radio set. I'm not clear how it's working because they do say, like, the food is all going bad because there's no power to run the refrigerators. He must have batteries because at some point you see that they're collecting up batteries. He must have some type of backup, something there. It's not explained, as yeah. Kate said. Maybe he was just well-prepared with a generator or something, but yeah. I don't even think in the 80s people were really thinking that far ahead. But I will say, now I am a ham radio operator. I'm licensed by the FCC. You do have to have a license. You can take a very simple test. The testing materials are readily available. You don't even have to understand them. You just need to know the answers. Go in and take the test and you will get your ham radio license. And if ever there was an incident in which all communications are down, nobody, no matter how good they are, can disrupt radio waves in the atmosphere. So as long as you have a ham radio, which... I have a friend at work that is a big time ham radio guy. And when he found out I was a ham radio operator, he was like, hey, you got to get a rig set back up. So he got me an entire ham radio set for 50 bucks. And 
If the cell phones don't work, I'm still going to be able to communicate. Hams are ready for any emergency. You know, I would be able to get information out to find out what our parents are up to, etc. if it was necessary. Well, I guess we've got to have a backup on batteries there, Kate. Yeah, I do keep it charged. Now, the one I have is a little handheld set, but there are sets also that are huge tabletop sets like what we saw in the movie. Correct. So again, we're not sponsored by any top secret government agency or anything, but if you want to become a ham, there are ham radio clubs in most areas of the country and you can also go to fcc.gov and find out more about becoming a ham radio operator so clearly uh william devane is first kill kevin and rebecca i i'm not going to get into the details but anyway they decide to leave town eventually the entire town is succumbing to radiation poisoning and then Tragedy of tragedies, six-year-old little Scotty, played by Lucas Haas, who I think became a fairly well-known actor for at least a period. He succumbs to the radiation, and I had to shut the movie off for a while, everybody. Like, I was so profoundly impacted by this kid dying. I don't even know why, except he sort of looks like my nephew, who I'm very attached to. And I know it made me look like a crazy person, but Greg can tell you, I went online, I looked up the actor, I found him on Instagram, and I sent him an email. I was pleased to see he still seems to be alive and active on Instagram, so look up Lucas Haas, and let's all be thankful he survived the nuclear winter. I really was a mess about this. And he was just the sweetest little, sweet little kid. And the mother of this family is trying to hold it all together. She's keeping a journal, a.k.a. the Testament. I think that's probably why this movie got its name, because she's writing down everything that happens. But there are multiple children in the neighborhood whose parents are either dying or never made it home. And she's taking those children in, and they are just fighting to get by and do everything they possibly can. And the town is just like it runs out of cemetery space. They're burning the bodies. What it eventually comes down to, there are no happy endings in a nuclear holocaust. Correct. I mean, we don't see the actual end to everybody in the town, but one can only guess that it's everybody's going to eventually die in this town. We don't know what happens with the rest of the world, but we can only assume that basically... The whole world is dead, and this is sort of maybe one of the last visages of people that were alive. But At um, least the United States is no more. Yeah. I'm willing to go that far. Yeah. yeah exactly. uh, you're rating, Greg, on this bad boy. I think I had more emotions on this one maybe than the other one, just because, I mean, it really, it sort of hits, hits home a little bit, sort of that... We haven't learned from movies like this. We haven't learned from our past that that things happen. I mean, as Kate sort of mentioned about 9-11, I mean, there's just a lot of stuff that still has happened after this movie came out. And nobody seems to care that people are trying to elude that things like this is 
horrible and there's no coming back from something like this but we still hear about nukes and everything like that still today how many arms can we build up like the world just is on fire at this point and there's no end to it how much money does the u.s spend on the military it's ridiculous and i mean i think for its time this movie really presented what can really happen and i mean i think that it still is very relevant i mean this is basically what would happen even today if the whole scenario happened. So I have to give this a decent rating for the whole portrayal of what happened. I mean, and at least Kevin Costner was a little bit more in this than Table for Five and had a few lines before him and his wife leave town. We don't know what happens to him. I don't know. It's very hard for me because I think Table for Five was good and I gave it a three. I'm giving this a 3.5. I don't think I could give it a four, but maybe that's just me seeing a 1980s movie with 2023 eyes. But I think the movie aged pretty well, though. Yes, it aged pretty well. I'm not prepared to give it a four or five, I okay. think. That's fair. I don't know. I'm not exactly sure why I'm saying that, but I, I just sort of feel that in my heart that that's, that's where I would go. What would you say, Kate? I am not prepared to go all in on this movie, but I am prepared to give it a four. Okay, okay. Um, this is by far the best movie we've seen so far of any movie that has Kevin Costner in it. To this point now, it's only the third one fourth one we braided i think that there are probably going to be better movies out there costner wise Mm -hmm. so i don't know that i can give it a five but this movie was almost the total package truthfully it gave me a lot to think about in terms of you know what does happen to people on the edges we we talk a lot I don't know how deeply into my personal philosophy about this country I want to get into, but we have kind of a professional victim mentality in this country. Um, We celebrate Pearl Harbor Day and not celebrate, but we remember Pearl Harbor Day. And there's always a lot of talk about 9-11 and commemorating those days. And, And I understand that the attacks were horrific and everything, but we've done some horrific things, too. And when I think about, uh, like, we saw Oppenheimer this summer, like, basically everybody else did. Right. And when you think about what did the people in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which is basically, they're going through what this movie portrayed. Well, I never really thought about that. You know, we get told that that was the only way to end this horrible war, and it was a terrible decision to have to make, but there was no other option. And therefore, it was a good choice to drop those bombs. But we don't know what... We never hear about the fallout on ordinary people. And so watching this and watching the horror of... we And we don't know in this movie who the quote-unquote bad guys are. 
we don't know who dropped the, the nuclear bombs. I would think in 1984, it's pretty clearly the Russians. But I mean, who yeah. knows? They never say. Right. And you just don't think about what is it like to live through that only to then suffer and die from radiation sickness and radiation poisoning. Right. And what is the toll on your family? And if you are the healthy one in your family, watching your children die, watching your neighbors die, watching killing rats in your food supply, um, watching babies die, watching bodies be burned. They didn't show that in a gory way, but it was like, you know, it really to me brought home when you put away the glorification of the military in this country and you look at what actually could be happening as a result of these wars and these things that are going on. I'm probably going to cost us <laughs> all of our listeners, but that's just how I feel sometimes. Like, right. you know, we, we had an exchange student probably 2015 from Japan. And one of the things that I used to do, we lived in Washington, D.C. at the time, is I would take them down on the National Mall and I would take them to all the monuments. So we would see the World War II Memorial, the Martin Luther King Memorial, the Lincoln Memorial, the Vietnam Wall, the Korean War Memorial, all those. And um, after I took her on the tour of these and I said to her, well, what did you think? Do you have anything like this in Japan? And she said, no, in our country, we prefer to glorify peace. And that really hit me hard thinking about what is it that we are memorializing here. Right, exactly. So when I think about putting all of that aside, and that has nothing to do with my feelings, I'm, we're a proud military family on my side of the family. Um, and there's pl plenty of people on my side as well that have gone to war. Yeah, so we were, um, on my dad's side of the family, we're gold star family. My grandfather served in the Navy in World War II and all of that. So putting that all aside, just thinking about the kind of militaristic mindset this country has, and then thinking about what is the actual fallout for everyday human beings who get caught up in that. And when you see this beautiful little six-year-old die of the effects of that. Right. And then you read about this six-year-old who was murdered in Chicago this week because of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. And you just think, it's like it doesn't end. Forty years later, yeah, and hundreds of years before and hundreds of years after we're gone. Absolutely, Kate. So. Yeah, and I mean, of course, as this movie is portraying what's going on, Kate brought up, the fact that the U.S. had dropped this uh, nuke. Japan, sorry, atomic bomb, sorry, my apologies. You wonder, was there any recording of how some of them that survived for a while, like, did that play into how they made this movie a little bit? Did they sort of portray some of what had been learned from what happened there. Because I think that that is definitely something that needs to be 
remembered is how these people really went through this, how they suffered. And it's just the suffering continues and it's it's just sad. Don't you want to give it a four, Greg? You persuaded me. I'll push it to a four. Folks, she she convinced me. (laughs) Yes, because, I mean, I think discussing this and just the impact of such a thing like this and just the impact that stuff like this still has in relevance today is just, you can't quantify it. Yeah. This, this movie, I would recommend to anyone to watch. It was profoundly impacting to me, certainly. It sounds like it was to you. You know, I'm not going to say I wouldn't watch it again. In fact, sometime. Okay. Yeah, I think it would be hard for me to watch it again, but I think people today need to go back and see this and really think okay what what can really happen i mean just think about that for a while folks like no matter how i wanted that kid to live he was that woman watched her entire family die one by one yeah her daughter died her sons died her husband died right she died eventually eventually we don't see it but it just covers like her journal but right exactly and like at one point you see that she has to finally take the batteries out of this old answering machine that has recorded the last words of her husband it's just the impact so do we have any questions for kevin about either of these movies well, uh, I think for Testament, I, I'd like to hear his take on how he felt about making a movie like this that really portrayed a like a devastation like this. Did it profoundly impact him? Did it change his outlook? I want to hear what he thinks happened to Phil and his wife. Did they make it to Canada? Did they not make it to Canada? I don't know. I would love to hear. I don't think I really have any questions about Table for Five. It was a good movie, but this testament really hit me in the gut. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. It just hit differently. so. So please watch it. That's what we have to say. There are no happy endings in a nuclear holocaust. Next week, what are we watching, Greg? Okay, so looks like the next two in the in the queue are The Big Chill, which is the last movie Kevin was in in 1983. And then he was only in one movie in 1984 called Shadows Run Black. We don't know if we're going to get to both of them. Like I said, we have a new family member moving in tomorrow. So it may be that we just do the big chill. I don't know. Do we want to freak her out? It looks like Shadows Run Black is about a serial killer. I'm not sure. We got to see if this kid is. But, but she said she's into horror. That's true. She or, or being frightened. So maybe she actually would like it. We'll, we'll find out. We'll find out. So um, 
one way or another, we'll be back next week with either one or both of those movies. And until then, thanks for tuning in. Yes. And make sure you check us out online. We'd love to hear from you. See you next week. See you next week. Bye. Bye. The Kevin Costner Project is produced by October 10 Productions. Our theme music is Happy Acoustic Guitar Background Music by Music Unlimited via Pixabay.com. Audio clips included under fair use policies in our best accordance with U.S. copyright law. You can find us online at thekevincostnerproject.com or by searching Facebook, Instagram, Twitter X, or TikTok for The Kevin Costner Project. This podcast is not endorsed by Kevin Costner or his agents yet.